Welcome back. It's your host, Lori Lee, recording today in beautiful, sunny Palo Alto, California. You may or may not know that the concept of the Donor Diaries was born in conjunction with a film I'm producing with Maitree River Productions called Abundant. Abundant is a documentary film about giving and the huge impact we can have in the world by being abundant givers. The main content of our film features first-person stories from kidney and liver donors, most who donated to a complete stranger. Our professionally curated stories will be told and filmed in front of a live audience at the historic Majestic Theater in Dallas, Texas, September 23rd of this year. It's been a long time coming, and we're so excited it's finally here. Our stories focus on the unexpected experiences and effects of living donation. Now, this spring and summer, our production team has the fun task of interviewing and filming close to a dozen experts in various fields ranging from transplant, social sciences, economics, and religion, who will also be featured in the film to add context and to help us answer the question, who gives a kidney to a stranger? And this is how I find myself in the impossibly cool scenario where, as my team works very hard to prepare for a day of filming, I get to sit with Nobel laureate Al Roth in his stunning backyard near the Stanford campus with a cup of coffee, some bagels and cream cheese, and a mic. Life is looking pretty good today. Al Roth is a professor of economics at Stanford University. He's very well known for his application of economic theory to solutions for real-world problems. In 2012, he won a Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences jointly with Lloyd Shapley for the Theory of Stable Allocations and the Practice of Market Design. What does that mean? Well, Al designs markets. He's one of the most prominent players who has made kidney exchange possible. In a nutshell, his work revolutionized kidney donation around the world by using an economic theory to make kidneys more available. He's the person I look up to most in the transplant world. Besides these amazing accomplishments, though, he's an incredibly likable and approachable person who I could talk to for hours, which is why you're getting an extra long episode this month. Enjoy! Welcome, Ailes. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it's nice to be here. When I started my podcast, you were the first guest that I had in mind. And I think it actually delayed me starting the podcast because I was intimidated to call you up and see if you wanted to be interviewed. And never in a million years did I think I'd be interviewing you in your backyard. <laughs> well, welcome to California. Thank you. I'm loving it and I'm loving being here. Al, you're an economist and you've done such, such tremendous work in the field of transplant. Can you tell us a little bit about how an engineer and an economist ended up in the field of transplantation? So I'm often asked that question, and I think people hope that I have some heartwarming story about, <laughs> about illness. But in fact, I came to it through the mathematics. Um, so I got my PhD in 1974. And in 1974, a new journal called the Journal of Mathematical Economics was published. And in volume one, number one, was a paper by Lloyd Shapley and Herb Scarf. And it was about how to trade houses if you couldn't use money. And I was very interested in that as a, a the kind of toy problem that economists use to stretch our minds about how exchange works. But when I started to teach it to my students, they would say to me, you know, professor, we use money to <laughs> trade houses. And, and I actually knew that. But in 1982, I moved to the University of Pittsburgh from, from the University of Illinois. And Tom Starzl was there doing lots of transplants, including lots of kidney transplants. And so instead of saying trading houses, I started to say, well, let's talk about trading kidneys because it's against the law to use money to, to pay for kidneys. And you knew very little about kidneys at the time? Nothing at all. And I didn't expect that kidney exchange would become a real thing. This was just a, a rhetorical way to tell my students about how we would trade houses if we couldn't use money. Uh, but, but when I said kidneys, then they quieted down and listened. And so as you started teaching, did you start thinking this is a real possibility that we could actually do this? I didn't think about that for a long time. In fact, I, I didn't think about it really seriously until, until we moved to Boston. I moved to Harvard University in 1998. And in 2000, the first American kidney exchange was done at the Rhode Island Hospital. And that made me think about it. I realized that I had, I had notes about exchanging kidneys and some thoughts about how to organize that to scale. And that was, that was the problem that, that occurred to me, that the first kidney exchange 
the one that was done in, in Rhode Island, was between two pairs that were patients at the same hospital. And it was pretty clear that if kidney exchange was going to be a big deal, you'd have to think about it as inter-hospital exchange so that lots of pairs could have a look at each other and mm -hmm. be potential exchangers. Interesting. And so you developed the algorithm that is used to make present-day kidney exchange possible. Can you explain what a kidney chain is and why they're so impactful? Algorithms have changed over time. You know, the first algorithm that, that we proposed, we is, is me and Utko Unver and Typhoon Sunmez, isn't one that was actually used. What happened was we proposed an algorithm based on, on this paper by Shapley and Scarf using an algorithm called top trading cycles. And the thing about top trading cycles is it could make, could make a lot of cycles. Some of them could be very large. And at the time that, that we were talking to surgeons in 2000, no one was ready to talk about exchanges between many pairs. They, they only wanted to do exchanges between two pairs because, because they would do them simultaneously in order to make sure that nothing went wrong so that one pair gave a kidney but didn't get one. And when you do exchanges simultaneously between two pairs, between even just two pairs, you need four simultaneously available operating rooms and four simultaneously available surgical teams. And so one of the things our colleagues, our surgical colleagues said to us is, if you really want to help us do this, you have to help us do it the way we're equipped to do it, which is just two pairs. So the first algorithm we proposed, which, which was one that was employed by the uh, New England program for kidney exchange was one that just looked at finding matches between two pairs. Two pairs. And it used old, elegant graph theory. Uh, so once again, there was this established body of mathematics that, that allowed us to say, if you were trying to match nodes in a graph, uh, how would you do it? And what you mean by nodes in a graph in a kidney context is you say, call each pair each patient donor pair, a node, and two nodes are connected if those two pairs can do an exchange. That is, if if the patient in each pair can take the kidney from the donor in the other pair. And that turns out to be an old problem, how to find as many of those as you can. And so we delved into that older mathematics and adapted it for uh, exchange between the 14 transplant centers in New England that, that were the start of the New England program for kidney exchange. Wow. And were all 14 programs ready to go or were they skeptical about this idea? They, they were not all ready to go. And, and part of the reason is that kidney exchange between transplant centers was going to completely upend the way they were used to doing business because transplant centers are mostly pretty autonomous. They don't have to talk to each other a lot. They have their own patients and they, they do transplants in their own hospitals and they schedule their operating rooms to their own convenience. And living donor transplants are elective surgeries. So each hospital had a regular day when the kidney surgeons could do living donor transplants. And those days were were scattered through the week. I don't think there were a lot of Mondays and Fridays, but but of those 14 transplant centers, they had plenty of Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays as the <laughs> days they, they did their transplants. And of course, if you want to do exchange between patient donor pairs at different hospitals and you want to do it simultaneously, you have to have everyone schedule their operating rooms on the same day. And as I recall, everyone thought that would be fine. Why don't we all use the day that we customarily use? <laughs> uh, and I don't think they ever completely solved that problem. But of course, th there's always some flexibility in operating rooms because certainly deceased donor transplants aren't elective surgery. They're, they're done in a hurry and you have to be able to schedule operating rooms. But, but each exchange therefore had to be negotiated between the transplant centers that were involved. And that, you know, that was the beginning of a profound change in the, in the workflow of transplant centers that do kidney exchange. Today, um, we ship kidneys around the country and surgeries are sometimes scheduled with attention to commercial airplane flights when, when a kidney is arriving from, from someplace else. So, Along with the, the mathematics of the algorithms about which kidneys can go to which patients was, was also this giant change in who you have to coordinate with. And it's not just scheduling operating rooms. It's also payments. You know, all of a sudden you, you have insurers dealing with patients at different transplant centers who, who are going to be billed for different things. And, uh, 
that wasn't so bad in New England, which, which at least all the hospitals were, were dealing with the same kind of cost sheets for Medicare. But as soon as you start doing more international, more national transplants, what you could bill for Medicare for nephrectomies uh, was different in different hospitals. So we started to have to design some of the financial engineering that went into this also. Wow. So that must have been very disruptive to how they were doing business. It was, but it but it happened sort of slowly. It, mm-hmm. It's not that kidney exchange, the way we see it today, suddenly burst on the scene. What happened was a few kidney exchanges would get done. And each year we got a few more. And of course, what really broke it open was, was chains, starting with non-directed donors, uh, because not only, well, non-directed donors solve lots of problems and are, are really important for kidney exchange. So what's the significance of a non-directed donor when we think about paired exchanges? How do they help maximize the potential of a kidney chain? Okay. I mean, there are a lot of things to say here. So first of all, a non-directed donor is a donor who wants to give a kidney to someone but doesn't have a particular person in mind. And in the United States, we normally organize those donations so they're anonymous. And Instead of just being involved in a simultaneous exchange between pairs, a non-directed donor can start a chain. And the, and the reason that's the case is uh, the non-directed donor can donate to the patient in a patient-donor pair, and then the donor in that pair can pass the gift forward to, to another pair and another and another. And the chain can be organized so each pair gets a kidney before they give one. And that means the big risk that we worry about in doing closed cycles non-simultaneously is that some pair would give a kidney but not get one. But if if you start with a non-directed donor, every pair is asked to donate only at the same time or, or after it's gotten a kidney. And uh, so that really cuts down the risk and it allows chains to be very long. So that's, that's one reason non-directed donor chains are very important is they can involve a lot of transplants. But the other is chains give you opportunities to to match to transplant hard to hard to match patients patients who are highly sensitized and can hardly get any kidneys so let's take a step back on that too one of the things that that makes it hard for a patient to get a kidney is if they have a lot of antibodies to human proteins to human leukocyte antigens and if you have a lot of antibodies then there are very few people even people with the same blood type that you have who can actually give you a kidney. And of course, that makes it very hard to be in a pairwise exchange because you, in a pairwise exchange, you can only take a kidney from a pair that can also take your kidney. Exactly. And, and so that the it's hard to find anyone who, who a hardly sensitized patient can take a kidney from. And the chance that that'll be a match, that there'll be this double coincidence of wants is, is very small. But think about a, a big room full of highly sensitized pairs, hard-to-match pairs. You could be hard-to-match for other reasons, too. Your, your donor could have a blood type AB, and, and that makes them harder to match. But think of a big room full of people with hard-to-match pairs so that there's only one chance in 100 that a hard-to-match patient, say, can receive a kidney from someone who would otherwise be compatible. Well, if there's only one chance in 100, the chance that... I can give any one of those people a kidney is very small. But in a big enough room, the chance that I can give one of them a kidney is not so small. Now, the chance that they can give a kidney back to to my intended recipient is very small if my intended recipient is hard to match. But the chance that they can pass it forward to someone else in that big room isn't so small. And the chance that they can pass it forward to someone else in that big room. And that's how chains form. And that's how hard-to-match pairs get matched. So... So non-directed donors are, are just magical. And lots and lots, uh, at one point, more than half of the kidney exchange transplants that we do are involved in non-directed donor chains. Wow, you explained that so well. Thank you. So you talk in your book, and I've seen this on your blog, about barter being a double coincidence of wants, and that's kind of what you just explained. Can you explain what you you mean by a double coincidence of wants? Right. So there was a, an economist named Jevons, and right now I'm forgetting his first name, but it's a famous first. You know, I mean, his name is famous. I'm just blocking his name. But, uh, but Jevons, in the late 1800s, wrote a book about why barter was not an efficient way to organize economies. And he used houses as one of his examples. And he said, supposing you, you could only trade houses and not use 
money. So then there'd hardly be any trade in houses because what's the chance that I would want to swap my house for your house? That is, and, and, and the way I talk about this with students is, is I've moved a couple of times and each time I moved, I sold a house where I was and I bought a house where I was going. So now I live in California and, and we sold a lovely house that we lived in for many years in, in Boston uh, before coming here. But the chance that I would have been able to come to California if I had to trade houses, if I had to find someone who wanted to move to Boston at the same time I wanted to move to California and had an appropriate house to, to trade would be really small. So that's what, that's what Jevons called the double coincidence of wants, the chance that I would want your house and you would want my house and we could trade them. Right. Uh, and, and I don't think the guy that lived in this house would have wanted to move to Boston. He probably didn't. No. They moved to South Carolina, okay. in fact. <laughs> and um, and the people who bought our house in Boston already lived in Boston. <laughs> so one thing you could imagine is forming chains of houses. And it would be easier if you weren't restricted to a double coincidence of wants. If you could form a, a chain, there would be more chances that that, you know, we wanted to move from Boston to Palo Alto and – the people we bought the house from wanted to move from Palo Alto to South Carolina, and maybe they bought a house from someone who wanted to move somewhere else, maybe Boston. So you you could imagine that if computers had been available and money hadn't been available, the problem of selling houses could have looked different. And there were places in Eastern Europe before the fall of the Berlin Wall where you couldn't easily Sell, buy and sell houses because people's property rights were were ambiguous. People had rights to live in certain apartments, but but didn't own them and and couldn't sell them. And this caused a lot of problems because um, when, for instance, a couple became empty nesters, they might be living in a large apartment that they'd be happy to sell and and have a smaller apartment and maybe in a different place, but they couldn't. And so there were lots of people living in apartments larger than they needed while new families were forming and couldn't couldn't find places to live. So there started to be exchanges in places like Moscow and in some places in China, I believe, where people started to try to form cycles. You know, I have this big apartment. I'd be willing to trade it for something appropriate, you know, who might be interested. But of course, money is a great market design invention. Being able to trade houses for money is a really good idea. And it <laughs> helps ease the scarcity of housing. And of course, when economists look at kidneys, when you see almost 100,000 people on the waiting list for deceased donor kidneys, one thing that comes to mind is, is that when you can't, when you can't use prices to adjust supply, you're, you're likely to have shortages. And indeed, we, we have a shortage of kidneys for transplant around the world, not just in the United States. You focused a lot of your work on repugnant markets. What makes a market repugnant? Good question. So I use the word repugnant in a way that a better word might be controversial because what I, I like mean, the word repugnant. I think we should stick with that word. It's such a good word. Isn't it is it? a good word. I like it too. But, but often when I talk about repugnant transactions, people think that I don't like them. And what I mean is somebody doesn't like them. So, so my definition, loosely speaking, my definition of a repugnant transaction is a transaction that some people would like to engage in and other people think they shouldn't be allowed to engage in mostly for moral reasons, right? For reasons expressed in, in terms of, of ethics and morality. So I'm not talking about the, the big class of transactions that economists talk about that have what we call negative externalities, right? There's a reason why I can't build a discotheque in next door to your house in the residential district you, you live in because we would have We'd make a lot of noise at night and it would interfere with your ability to sleep in your house. And that's why the zoning laws presumably say that where you live, only residences can be. And similarly, I couldn't start a pig farm next door to your house because the pig farms smell and, and it would interfere with your ability to, to enjoy your house. So, so those are transactions that I might like to do, start a pig farm next to your house. But My house, uh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was such a good location. <laughs> you know, sell pigs in, in Chicago. But we all understand why you would object to that. But then there are other transactions that people would like to engage in, like, for instance, uh, marrying someone of the same sex. And as we know from the long battles about that in the U.S. and around the world, there are people who aren't themselves planning to marry someone of the same sex, but who think that you shouldn't be allowed to. And it's not clear the manner in which they're harmed, but the deep political divisions that have arisen about that suggest that there's something they don't like and can feel strongly about. I mean, we've had 
terrible battles about that in the United States before the Supreme Court decided in 2015 that uh, that states couldn't ban same-sex marriage in the United States. But people object for religious reasons, for, for reasons that don't seem to directly harm them. And and one of the things about, about a transaction like a marriage is you actually can't tell if people are married unless they tell you. Uh, so, so it's not like having a discotheque next door where a policeman could come with a decibel meter and, and say they're making more noise than is allowed after 10 p.m. in this region in Chicago. You know, it's just not clear what the harms are. But there's no doubt that people feel very strongly one way or the other. And, and we continue to have questions about whose rights in this respect are, are more important. So there are going to be court cases, you know, for as long as you can imagine about, you know, do you have to bake <clears> wedding <throat> cakes for, if, if you're a bakery that's open to the public and bakes wedding cakes, do you have to bake do them, you for have every, to make them for everybody. for everyone's yeah. wedding or mm-hmm. not? Um, so, so that's a, a kind of repugnant transaction. And of course, there's a, another class of transactions that, that I find very interesting, where the basic transaction isn't repugnant unless you add money. And of course, kidney donation falls exactly into that category. As you well know, we applaud kidney donors. So it, so it's a, a heroic thing to give someone a kidney, a, a great act of, of love and compassion and humanity. But it's a felony to sell someone a kidney, right? So a, it's a crime under the, the National Organ Transplant Act of 1984. And indeed, it's a crime almost everywhere in the world, the only country that has a, a fully legal monetary market for kidneys is the Islamic Republic of Iran. You know, that's, that's a very interesting case. There are black markets, of course. There are, there are markets run by, by criminals who will do transplants outside of the supervision of the medical establishment. And, and many of those markets are, are run very badly. And that's a function of the, the shortage that we see in transplantable organs. Kidneys are special in many ways, but they're not special in that way. Here in California, you can contract and pay someone to bear a child for you. We have commercial surrogacy in the United States, and it's it's now well protected by law in almost every state. I think there are three American states that don't allow commercial surrogacy. But throughout Western Europe, commercial surrogacy is illegal. And in Canada and Britain, surrogacy is legal. They, they recognize parental rights. You can have your, you know, if, if you and your significant other have a surrogacy in California, your names can be on the California birth certificate as the parents. And Canada recognizes those rights. But in Canada and in Britain uh, and, and in a number of other places, surrogacy is legal, but you can't pay the surrogate. It's illegal to pay the surrogate. So the status of it's like sur- kidney donation—it's like kidney donation. You know, kidneys can be donated freely and, and without compensation, but they can't be sold. You can't pay the donor for the kidney. But in the U.S., they can be paid. So does that mean Canadians are coming here for their? It surrogates? does indeed, because although surrogacy is legal in Canada, the fact that you can't pay surrogates means there aren't enough of them. We have a big, you know, thriving export business in surrogacy in wow. the United States. And then they probably get a U.S. birth certificate. Oh, they're Americans. Yeah, so then the they child, become Americans. The child like is double, an American. Yeah, the, it's a good deal. The intended parents are the parents on the California birth certificate. Now, in places like Germany and France and Spain, where surrogacy is illegal, where they don't recognize the parental rights, they've had this problem of they're, they're making potentially stateless children. That is, here you are wanting to go back to Germany with your baby just born in California. And, and let's, to keep it simple, let's suppose that the genetic parents are, are the intended parents. The, they, they donated a egg and sperm, but maybe they didn't have a working uterus between them. Mm-hmm. And so now they want to bring the baby back to, to Germany. So they go to the German consulate, who, which says, who is this small person and why do you think that she's German? And so <laughs> while the German high court's make surrogacy illegal, the German family courts have started to make room for German parents to adopt their own child and bring her back to Germany. Interesting. Uh, because you can't leave the child in California. I mean, if, you know, in other words, the, the high courts think about matters of morality and the family courts think about who's going to take this baby home and somebody has to take the baby home. And again, you know, this is one of these things where so I've read a little bit about the French law. I can read that. And the French law and the discussion around it sort of says something like, we know that there are families that need the help of a surrogate to, to start 
their family. And we know that there are women who have been pregnant and enjoyed it and wouldn't mind helping and, and would be glad to be paid for it. But this is wrong and we don't do wrong things in France. So their idea is that somehow it, it exploits women, surrogacy, paid surrogacy, but, but any surrogacy is illegal in France. Uh, so, so the thought behind the law is to prevent exploitation of vulnerable people. But of course, it's hard to think of a more vulnerable person than a newborn. And outlawing surrogacy in France does not stop people who need surrogates to start a family from coming to California and having a baby. And my sense is that just as there are black markets, you know, for, for kidneys, certainly it's even harder to stop something when it's legally available somewhere else. Exactly. And in terms of having children, you know, we're all descended from generations of people who never forgot to have children. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, didn't skip a generation. And so it's built in. You know, wanting children is is a big deal. I, I, I'm very skeptical that France can make a law against it. And that people will follow it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So so that's one of the interesting things about repugnant transactions. You, it, it's a transaction that some people want to do and other people want to prevent. But it turns out it's hard to prevent things that people want to do. Exactly. Can you talk a little bit about the repugnance embodied in the prohibition of rewarding living donors? Well, so as in the case of the French law against surrogacy, which is intended to protect, protect vulnerable women from being exploited, I think the concerns about rewarding living donors are, are meant to protect poor and, and exploitable people mm -hmm. from having their organs exploited have, have, you know the the thought is desperately poor people might might sell their organs under unfavorable circumstances and indeed that's what we see in some of these black markets right so there are there are ethnographic studies of of the black market in Egypt for example where Eritrean refugees stranded in Egypt hoping to get to Italy are recruited by by fellow refugees who have sold a kidney in Egypt to to sell a kidney to say, you know, this is a possibility for you. And some of those markets are, are run very badly. I recently gave a talk at um, the biannual uh, meetings run by the transplantation societies that, that were in Buenos Aires in Argentina. And I showed a, a snip from a video that a, a colleague had sent me of an illegal black market transplant going on somewhere in the world. And the surgeons weren't wearing masks or gowns. So it wasn't being done in a hospital. It wasn't in a sterile field, right? So, so no one should have to where, have that kind of surgery. Where was that? It happening? was somewhere in South Asia. Okay. Uh, and I, I, and you had photos of it. I did. Wow. Uh, that that sent to me by a, a transplant surgeon who I know, and I blocked out the faces because possibly the surgeons would have been recognizable, but left enough to see that they weren't wearing masks. And 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 the point is that the laws against paid donation in this country had driven the had successfully driven these surgeries out of the hospitals but there they were happening in a in a villa as they say and you know and the reason people engage in it is because they're going to die if they don't get a kidney and they can't get a kidney where they live and presumably the they're not getting very good care and of course the donor probably wasn't getting very good care either so so these are you know terrible things but there's a somali poet residing in England, whose, whose name now escapes me, but she wrote a poem about, about migration to, to Europe. And, and there's a line in it that says, nobody puts their children in a boat unless the sea is safer than the land. And what she's thinking of is these people in little rubber boats trying to cross the Mediterranean from, you know, Turkey or, or Egypt or Libya, and they're desperate. And of course, that's why there are black markets for kidneys is is there are people who are who are desperate so it would be good to find ways to end the shortage of kidneys and kidney exchange you know i can tell you about victory after victory but it's in a war that we're losing uh when i started to think about kidney exchange there were about 40,000 people on the waiting list for deceased donor kidneys in the US and today it's almost 100,000 so we're doing lots of transplants that we couldn't have done otherwise but diabetes is epidemic. Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of things going on. Some of it is good news. 
you know, the, the behind the growing list, right? Transplantation is complicated. So some of it has to do with there are fewer auto accidents than there used to be. And that, that's shifted the source of deceased donors from head injuries and auto accidents to opioid overdose deaths in the United yeah, States. Which is a, a good thing. Which is, yeah. yeah. No, no. So, I mean, there's, there, it's good that we have fewer auto accidents. Mm-hmm. It's, it's bad that we have more than 100,000 opioid overdose deaths last year in the United States. So, so that's terrible. On the other hand, you it's know. helping. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the transplantation is is somebody's bad news might be somebody else's mm-hmm. good news. So the nice thing about living donation is it doesn't involve these, the bad these terrible bad news stories. Exactly. So do you believe that living donors should be rewarded? I think that it's time to think about how to do that carefully, responsibly, ethically, and legally. Yes. Uh, you have to be careful. You know, so people ask me, do I want to repeal the National Organ Transplant Act? Do you want to repeal NOTA, Al? And I don't want to repeal it. I would like to amend it. Okay. How would we amend it? Well, we've already started to do some things about removing the financial disincentives for donating. So I'm on the advisory board of of an organization called NALDAC, which is the National Living Donor Assistance Center. And it's a federally funded program that helps poor donors with some of the financial costs of donating a kidney. And and the reason there are costs is supposing supposing that I needed a kidney and someone who loved me wanted to give me a kidney. Well, I live in California and a lot of the people who love me live on the East Coast. So they'd have to take time off from work. They'd have to fly to California. They'd have to have a couple of visits at my transplant center. They might have lost wages. They might have childcare uh, expenses. And for for a while, until quite recently, NALDAC was only able to offer transportation costs and, and per diem sort of costs for food on the road. And now we can offer a little more. You know, the regulations have changed. We can offer some lost wages and, and child or elder care. But it's for receipted expenses. This is this is not being rewarded. This is just being no longer penalized quite as much. And there's a means test. Not everyone, you know, not everyone is is uh, eligible. And it has to do with the means, not just of the donor, but also of the recipient. So, right. so, so, so your donor wouldn't be eligible for it, probably. Uh, someone who donated to me wouldn't be eligible. Mm-hmm. And of course, that was particularly tricky for non-directed donors who wouldn't know who I was, and and I wouldn't know who they were, so I wouldn't be able to pay their living expenses. Or, or lost wages expenses. I mean, a non-directed donor who lived on the East Coast would likely have a, a kidney shipped, but they might still lose wages or, or have childcare or things like that. And, and not being able to pay those would deter them from being able to give a kidney. So the economists who are most carefully looking into the costs and benefits are Phil Held and Frank McCormick. And they point out, as others have pointed out also, that the U.S. healthcare system saves a lot of money every time someone is transplanted because the alternative to transplantation is dialysis. And dialysis isn't nearly as good treatment, but it's also much expensive. more expensive. Right. So loosely speaking, a year of dialysis costs about as much as, as a transplant. But after a year of dialysis, you need another year of dialysis and then another and another. And there are transplant centers where the waiting time is nine years. So dialysis costs are enormous. In the U.S., the, a large part of those costs are paid by Medicare. So taxpayers save a lot of money when a transplant happens. So we could certainly afford to be more generous to donors than we now are. And we could do it in ways that made sure that there was informed consent and that we weren't exploiting temporary desperation. You know, I'm a market designer, so, so I'd be happy to be asked to think hard about how we should design a legal market in which donors could be compensated. And it would take some real thought because because some bad things could happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and probably will, even if you come up with a really good market design. Absolutely. Yeah. There'd be holes that you'd want to fill and things you'd overlook that you'd want to fix. But I think that one way to tell whether you've done a good job 25 years after is you should see in airport bookstores, you should see books with titles like the kidney donor seller's Exercise and nutrition guide. You too can qualify to, to be a donor. You know, the way we used to see things that were called things like the Canadian Air Force exercise regime or something like that. I can't wait to take a picture of that book for you in an airport in 25 years. Exactly. So, and one way 
to know that we'd been successful is that donating a kidney when you could be compensated for it would cease to be a repugnant transaction. And making something legal doesn't automatically stop it from being repugnant. So before COVID, I gave a talk in Germany about repugnant transactions. And I talked about, I focused on three markets, prostitution, surrogacy, and kidney exchange. And the reason I focused on those three in Germany is that the German laws are exactly the opposite of the American laws. The only one of those three markets that's legal in Germany is prostitution. And that's the only one that's illegal in the United States. But surrogacy and kidney exchange are both legal in the US and illegal in Germany. But we had a similar discussion about legalization when I was a young man during the Vietnam War. We had a conscription army. And after the Vietnam War, we switched from a conscription army to what we call a volunteer army, by which we mean a paid army. We pay our soldiers instead of drafting them. Mm -hmm. And one of the concerns at the time was that maybe being an American soldier would become less honorable, would come to seem less as, as service to the country and more as being a mercenary. Now, that hasn't happened. When I board an airplane these days, we're invited to board after families with children and serving soldiers. Uh, So the reason I bring that up is it's still honorable to be an American soldier. And if someone runs for, for the Senate and they were a Marine, that's a big part of their campaign. Now in Germany, it's legal to be a prostitute, but no one runs for the Bundestag saying, vote for me because when I was young, I was a sex worker. Uh, So, so, in the U.S., we've we've switched to a paid army, and it's stayed honorable. It's not a, a mercenary transaction. And in Germany, they've legalized prostitution, but it's still a repugnant transaction. People don't boast about what their kids are doing if, if they're sex workers. So part of judging the success of a hypothetical paid market for kidneys in the United States would be whether when people ran for Senate, they said, vote for me. I saved someone's life when I was young. I sold a kidney. And I, I donated a kidney and was paid for it. I served in the Marines and was paid for it. Right. So, so the question is, a successful compensated market for kidneys would be one in which it was something that you were proud to do. Yeah. And, it was and, still honorable. It was absolutely. still sexy. You still, you still felt good about it and you, you don't have to hide it from people. Cause exactly. I understand in other parts of the world, it's not necessarily honorable. If you donate a kidney, it's kind of like, oof. Well, in Iran, in well. Iran, where where you could be paid for for donating a kidney, uh, the the donors don't like to be identified. They they feel more like the sex workers in Germany than like the the soldiers in the U.S. That's a shame. It is. So there's something I don't know enough detail about. There's something wrong still with their market. Their market is not working as well as it should. So On your the other mar- hand, your market would address that and make well, sure. Well, that that's one way. You could tell if, if if it didn't address it, it wouldn't be working properly. Mm. So so you'd have to fix it, uh, and and that would be a sign of its success. And and there's something wrong in the Iranian market. That being said, European and American medical observers all agree that the Iranian transplants go on in real hospitals with real transplant professionals. And so, they wear masks, I bet. And they wear masks, right? Right. And they get they get post surgical care for both the. Uh, Transplants of the donors, both the recipients and the donors. There may be problems. There, there, there appear to be problems with the Iranian market that stop the donors from wanting to be identified. But it's a lot better than the black markets that, that exist in many places mm-hmm. around the world where people return home with opportunistic infections that, that can be life threatening, where donors are not well treated and return home without medical care post surgically. So I think one reason to think about how to legally and ethically compensate donors is to wipe out these terrible black markets. Mm, Interesting. Can we switch gears a little bit here? Sure. One of the initiatives you're working on is the utilization of deceased donor kidneys to initiate living donor chains, which I understand has taken off in Italy. Can you explain what this looks like and the possible impact it has on our ability to solve the kidney shortage? Right. Uh, Well, so we have a shortage of kidneys, both from deceased donors and living donors. But a non-directed living donor can spark a bunch of transplant. Chains can be pretty long. Whereas a deceased donor kidney is almost always non-directed. But 
one deceased donor kidney causes one transplant. So if you could start a chain with the deceased donor kidney passing through the kidney exchange pool of paired donors and then ending back with a donation to the deceased donor waiting list, that could get more kidneys out of, out of each deceased donor. And because deceased donors are mostly non-directed, that's a, a possibility. Now, there are lots of bureaucratic and regulatory barriers to making that happen on a large scale in the United States because we have a, a giant regulatory apparatus about how deceased donor kidneys are assigned. So some changes in that would be nice to see that would facilitate deceased donor chains. And I wrote a paper about this with Mike Reese and, and Mark Melcher and John Roberts with a, with a, a group of, of surgeons. And after we'd written it, Jennifer Erickson, who, who worked in Obama's the Obama White House Office of Science and Technology helped organize a transplant summit at the White House. And one of the things that I heard about there, and, I, and it may be Jennifer who, who uh, surfaced it, was we have a procedure in the U.S. called military share in which military families can choose to have one of the two kidneys from an eligible deceased donor donated to Walter Reed Military Hospital. And Walter how, Reed Military- How long have they been doing that? They've been doing it for a while, but I don't know how long. But but this was during the Obama White House, and that already existed. Okay. But anyway, Mike Reese and I and, and others have been talking to Walter Reed about the possibility of using these to start deceased donor chains, deceased donor-initiated chains through the Walter Reese's kidney exchange pool or through kidney exchange pools elsewhere in the United States that would come back to, to the military deceased donor waiting list. So I think this is a real possibility. As you say, following the publication of our paper in Italy, they've started to do this. They've, they've done a bunch. But it also changes the way nations might think about coordinating kidney exchange. So let me use the example of Denmark because some Danish patients are coming to the United States now. Denmark is a wealthy European country with a splendid healthcare system, but there's only five or six million Danes. So a Danish person with, with end-stage renal disease, if he's, he or she is highly sensitized, has a lot of trouble getting a kidney in Denmark because Denmark just, just has- Just a small pool. It's a very small pool, both of kidney exchange, where the pool is tiny, tiny, and of deceased donation because we, we have about 100 times more deceased donors than Denmark. So- Think of a patient donor pair looking for kidney exchange in Denmark, but happy to get a deceased donor if they could. There, the, the patient is likely to die on dialysis because if, if he's highly sensitized, the, the chance of getting a kidney in Denmark is small. But in the U.S., where there's lots of deceased donors, the chance of uh, finding a kidney is 100 times larger. Now, of course, deceased donor kidneys are scarce in the U.S., so you can't easily imagine a policy where we would Share just open country. the doors yeah. to other countries. But remember, this is a patient-donor pair. So the pair could come, find a, a deceased donor kidney that they could get through the American transplant system, and the intended donor would then donate to someone in the American kidney exchange pool, and it would start a chain that, with the last donation going back to the American deceased donor waiting list. So that would be a way of bringing a living donor kidney into the American exchange pool, saving a life in Denmark, saving lives in the U.S. You know, along that chain, there could be some very highly sensitized people, not just the Dane. And of course, this requires a lot of market design too, including financial engineering. So, so it turns out that although Denmark has a Excellent healthcare system that's well funded. Uh, they don't pay for transplants outside of the out of outside of, of Denmark. So at the moment, a Danish, a private Danish foundation has been set up to fund people in that situation to come to the United States. Interesting. That's incredible. Sounds disruptive in the same way it probably felt disruptive when you started doing this on the East Coast, when people were like, "Wait, what are we doing now?" Yes. No. It's it's clearly complicated and a little controversial, and it yeah. requires all sorts of engineering, you know, it turns out that, that a foreign patient who Danish insurance doesn't cover, you know, it's not just the costs of, of all the hands-on things that have to be done, the surgeries. It turns out there are insurance issues that come bundled with American insurance. When someone goes into surgery, there's, there's just automatic insurance for adverse outcomes. But when you have a foreign patient, even if, even once you've figured out how to pay for the surgeries, like this Danish foundation, there's still the question of insurance for adverse outcomes. So so there's lots of 
bits and pieces that, that have to join together when you try to join transplant systems across borders. And that's one of the things that makes it so difficult. But even if we paid for that, we'd still be saving money because we'd be taking an American off dialysis, right? Absolutely. So we would be saving money, but that we is part of a very broadly spent budget. So the we who would be saving money is most likely uh, Medicare. But it might be private insurance because people who have good private insurance are the first 33 months are covered by the private insurance before they become Medicare eligible for, for kidney disease. But it turns out there's very few parts of the American healthcare system that look at the whole budget, right? There's private payers, <laughs> there's Medicare, there's other kinds of government payers. Uh, and I recently had a discussion with the chief economist at USAID, which does foreign, gives foreign aid support to, to other countries, including support in fighting infectious diseases, which is a kind of self-interested medical support, because if, if Ebola can be controlled, then, then we'll, we won't have Ebola in the United States. So I wanted to talk to them about kidney chains that might cross borders in this way. And part of the answer was transplantation is very expensive. And as near as they could see, that would come out of the USAID budget. And greater savings would accrue to Medicare. But the people who spend the USAID budget, don't see the savings right. in Medicare. Different buckets of money. Different buckets of money. And that it turns out to be very hard to find someone, you know, sitting at a lower level of government than the White House who who has a vision that sees both the Medicare budget and the foreign aid budget and the private insurers. So that's, Like it's not that hard, but it is. It turns out to be very hard. Yeah. Right. So a lot of these things, you know, like repugnant transactions, they, these are bureaucratic frictions that are hard to overcome and they're they're not to be sneered at. They're really hard to overcome. Wow. Al, you talk a lot about the importance of large pools of kidneys for sharing. And I know that, you know, we've talked a little bit about sharing kidneys across borders. What are the advantages and disadvantages to having multiple matching markets? for kidneys like we do in the US right now. Well, so there's a disadvantage if the if the pools are too small. Then then you find yourself doing inefficient exchanges, giving giving say blood type O kidneys to patients who don't need them either because the patient is blood type O or because the patient is very highly sensitized. So a lot of the exchanges that go on within single transplant centers are just at too small a scale to to be working well. So we'd like large pools. The three Multi-hospital exchanges are, are NKR and APKD and, and UNOS. I think they're all large enough to be mostly at scale. There'd be some extra advantages if we had one large national pool. On the other hand, the advantage to having three multi-hospital exchanges is innovation. So, you know, I work closely with Mike Reese at the Alliance for Paired Kidney Donation, and he's been a giant innovator. The, you know, he did the first non-simultaneous non-directed donor chain, and that's proved to be maybe the biggest innovation that's that's happened in kidney exchange. But but he's doing a lot of financial innovation, so is NKR. So having these organizations innovating is a good thing. I think I think that while it would be great to have a single large pool, it wouldn't be great to fix the procedures so that no one changed them anymore. And that and, there's one way of doing things. And that there's one way of doing things. And right now it's hard to imagine how to get a single large pool without cutting back on some of the Shutting innovation. down innovators. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for the moment, I'm glad to, to see the innovators. But but we'd like large pools, and that's why you'd like to start lowering the barriers that, that international borders have. I gave a talk a couple of years ago at a big Canadian transplant symposium. I'll be give, giving another one in Canada later this year, suggesting that we should coordinate better with Canada. They have fine kidney exchange, but Canada is only about the size of, of California. Um, and everyone who I spoke to agreed, but no one said, you know, I'm a high official of Canadian blood services and I'm going to make it happen. And it hasn't happened. So bureaucratic obstacles are very real obstacles, just like medical obstacles and financial obstacles. What about this, Al? What if American women offered up their uteruses to get a kidney from Canada? Um, you know, <laughs> I think that would probably be repugnant. <laughs> also, probably if you need a kidney, you're not a good candidate to be a surrogate. No, I mean, if For I'll give else. you, yeah, yeah, you give my dad a kidney yes. and in return, you can borrow my uterus for yeah. nine months. You know, it's, it's a thought there, there has been at least one a liver kidney exchange, right? At, That's exciting. At UCSF, right? Where someone gave a liver and got a kidney in return. You know, 
different patient donor pairs did that. Uh, so I think that you could certainly think about that. I think that the... That would be like the guy that lived here having to move to Boston, though. Because liver is a lot harder than kidney, don't you think? It is hard, but but the the person who initiated it was the intended donor of the kidney, who for whatever reason her uh, you know her mother couldn't take her kidney, but but someone could take her liver and give her mother a kidney. So you know, so so saving lives is a is a a great thing to do in barter if you can't do it, it any is. other way. Well, Al, I started out the podcast telling you that you're the person I look up to most in transplant, and this has been such an honor to get to interview you today. I do have one last question. Who is the person that you look up to most in the transplant community? Well, so I think Mike Reese is the big hero of kidney exchange and, and kidney transplantation. And uh, I've worked with lots of surgeons, and he's far and away the most innovative and the one who who thinks most broadly about how to address the shortage of kidney transplants. Is there anything else you want to add today? No, I think it, it's fun talking to you. It was so fun talking to you. And now I get to go listen to you for a few hours. This is just such a great morning. Thanks so much, Al. Sure thing. Al mentioned that he admires Mike Reese from the Alliance for Paired Kidney Donation. Mike and Al are doing some incredible work in the area of international kidney exchange. Imagine what's possible if we could eliminate borders and share kidneys worldwide. This is a great segue into next month's episode with Northwestern Medicine's Chief of Transplant and Director of Northwestern's Comprehensive Transplant Center, Dr. Satish Nadig. He's an innovative trailblazer and inspiring leader who will tell us about the exciting work happening at Northwestern, which is my transplant center, with international kidney exchanges. I hope you tune in. To learn more about Al Roth, check out my show notes for a link to his blog and other podcasts that feature his story and work. You can also find links to the Abundant website to learn more about our film. I hope you check it out. Donor Diaries is produced by Rob Lee with Matry River Productions. Join the conversation on Facebook by searching the Donor Diaries podcast. And if you're enjoying Donor Diaries, I'd love it if you could take a second and subscribe and give it a thumbs up wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps more people find us. Thanks for listening.